Years ago, I was planning a trip to Houston. I was holding some meetings for this ministry, and uh, in Houston, I planned to stay with some friends of ours, the, the Shables. And a few days before the trip, I got a letter from Jen Shable. It was a little card from Jim, and it was the weirdest letter I think I've ever gotten. It just said, Wayne, Job 38.3, Jim. Somewhat bemused, I looked up Job 38.3, which says, Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you and you will instruct me. Gird your loins. In case you don't know it, it's a phrase from the ancient Near East. It describes getting ready for battle by taking your inner tunic and wrapping it around, basically making what we today would call a jockstrap so that you can go into battle. You see, Jim is an athlete, and he loves competition. And when I arrived, every spare minute in Houston was spent playing racquetball, basketball, or tennis, swimming, running, shooting pool. I stayed with the Shables a number of times over the years, and before every trip I made to Houston, I got another letter. One of them was Isaiah 8-9, another was Acts 12-18, another was Jeremiah 1-17. Every one of those passages has one thing in common, gird your loins, they say. Now, here's the most important part. <clears throat> it wasn't just trash talk. Jim Shabel believed in preparation. He seriously wanted me to be ready, prepared to take advantage of all the fun of competition. This was a man who understood the value of being ready more than maybe anyone I've ever known. L listen, Jim led the only advertising company that I know of in America that survived the heavy downturn of the 1980s, the recession of the 1990s, and the merger frenzy of the 2000s. Why did his company thrive when every other one in his field that I know of collapsed? It's because he had cash on hand and he prepared in advance what to do when business gets tough. While everybody else scrambled, he was prepared. Same was true in their personal life. That house that I stayed at in Houston where the Shables lived, it was built in the early 1970s. But for decades, for three decades, the Shables refused to change the shag carpet because it worked just fine. They still had the, how many of you are old enough to remember foil wallpaper? They still had the yellow foil wallpaper in the bathrooms. The brown appliances in the kitchen worked fine. There was no need to replace them. So instead of spending money on that, they put all their money into strong investments, and they paid for all their kids' college. And they, they built up a wonderful retirement. They built a gorgeous forever home, and they had margin for all the downtimes. Above all, the Shables were exceptional givers both to their church and to the parachurch ministry where I served. Jim saw all this as preparation. He was ready for good times and bad times. He was ready for eternity. He was always primed. As I was developing our new study in Joshua, I thought about Jim. Because Joshua 1 through 5 is all about preparation. Preparation for good times, for bad times, for a legacy, and for eternity. Just as Jim Shable worked to prepare me, gird your loins, so God works to prepare Joshua. And I get to join the party, and I get to spend the next few days helping to prepare you. Are you ready? Are you ready to be prepared? All right, then gird your loins. We're going to start with an assessment. I have six categories of questions about your life. Let's see how ready you and I really are to face all the challenges of life. The first category is spiritually. Gird your loins spiritually. Three simple questions. I pray. Answer this for yourself. I pray regularly, fervently, joyfully, or the other extreme, rarely. Put yourself somewhere on that scale. Be honest. Question number two. I take in the Bible, both corporately, meaning studying with other people, and personally in my own time. 
Or the other extreme would be, I take in the Bible reluctantly and fitfully. Where are you? Question three, spiritual preparation. I worship wholeheartedly. That's how scripture says to worship. Or do I worship only if a song I like really moves me? But maybe the saddest part of that extreme is that you've reduced worship to only about music, which is not at all what the Bible says. Where are you on that scale? Please open your Bible, if you would, to Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21, and let's go to verse 31. Proverbs 21, <clears throat> verse 31. A horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory comes from whom, everybody? The Lord. Our goal setting, our preparation is very important. If we don't prepare, we will be shattered in the day of battle. But our victory comes from God, not ourselves. It is His power that works in us. That's why we have got to be spiritually healthy. Second area, let's look at your physical life, okay? Let's gird your loins physically. I exercise... If you don't exercise, you can skip this question. I exercise to feel and look good. That's one extreme. At the other is to care for God's temple. By the way, if you don't know this, you should. 1 Corinthians tells us that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your very body is the temple of God the Spirit. That's amazing. And that is the highest reason to exercise, take care of the temple. At the other extreme is, well, I, I want to look good or feel good. Question number two about physically. I eat and drink as a self-medication, think comfort food, or I eat and drink wisely to enjoy God's provision. He gave them all good things to enjoy, says 1 Thessalonians. I do that wisely or just as self-medication. I take medication, question number three, as prescribed. By the way, do you know this? The National Institutes of Health says that 50% of American prescriptions are not used according to the label. I, asked, I couldn't believe it was that high, that people really don't take their medication prescribed. So I called my family doctor, and I said, this is what it says. He said, oh, no, it's, that's not right. He said, at least in my practice, it's more like 60%. All right, is that you? Or do I, do I take it as prescribed? Or just according to my desire. Answer on that scale where you are. Physically, a Christian is expected to live out the reality that we are God's temple embodied. We are his place of work. We are his place of worship. To that end, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Let's read it all together. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Next area, mentally gird your loins. I acquire information interactively and critically. I read in, interactively and critically or passively. I've just got the TV on blaring at me all day long or only in an echo chamber, only from sources that I find agreeable. This is one of my favorite questions to ask because it is amazing how people will, will think that they are further toward this side than they are. Every, oh, no, I read very critically, very interactively. Really? What do you do? I read the same thing every day. Ah, okay. Well, question two. I read regularly and broadly or rarely. Ooh. You're not girding your loins mentally if you don't read. I'm sorry. That's all there is to it. Question number three. I set aside time to think. Would you say daily or would you say somewhere on the scale to never? I don't, I don't have time to think. That's why you don't have time to think. Figure that out. <clears throat> if I'm not loving God with my whole mind, I am missing a key component of the great commandment which tells me to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, body, and spirit. 1 Peter chapter, three, verse thir chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. 
Be sober and rest your hope fully on the grace to be brought you at the revelation of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Occupationally, let's talk about our, our work. Every day I get by, I just get by, or I do my best unto God every day. Where are you on that scale? Think. Figure this out. Question two, I advance the career of myself above all, or I advance the career of everyone that I properly can and should. Question number three, I pursue selfish ambition. The other extreme, I pursue the common good. Which way do you lean? You know, only a very honest person would answer, I pursue selfish ambition. But only a very foolish person would ignore the regular pull that every one of us has in that direction, right? Let's read Ephesians 2.10 together. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Amen. How ready are we for success? Let's check ourselves financially. Question number one, I give. These are the four things scripture says about giving for Christians. It should be purposeful, regular, sacrificial, and before the Lord unto God. At the other extreme is I give for personal benefit. It's only when I, it makes me feel better, or I get something out of it, or from emotion, okay? Where, where are you on that scale? Question number two, I spend wisely enjoying God's blessings. Remember, all things for them to enjoy. I spend wisely to enjoy, or foolishly. How do you save? Question three, as a wise planner or as a miser, right? <laughs> it's mine, mine, right? How, how do you, this is where people get the most angry, when I've given these kind of assessments, because how we use money, just as Jesus predicted, where your money is there, your heart is, how we use money shows more than anything else where we really are. But instead of being mad at God meddling, let, let, let's prepare financially, shall we? Join me on the underlined parts of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Arrange in advance, says Paul, the generous gift you promised so that it will be ready. Prepare as a gift and not an extortion. The point is this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. Let's wrap our assessment with relationships. Question number one, I engage with accountable Christians. Bible studies, life groups, so I, I find a place where I can engage with people who are real with me. Or I engage minimally as possible, right? We're not talking about your style. You might be very, very introverted or shy. That's fine. You still can engage with people. You know that. You have to. Question number two, I build new relationships as often as practical or... I build new relationships too often. Newsflash, you cannot be best friends with everybody. You can't. You're a Lego. You've only got so many connection points, right? Yeah? I know, you, you've got, you're like one of those base plates. You've got 700 of them. Uh, he's got two, right? But, but, but still, there's connection points. The other problem is I engage too rarely, right? I build relationships too rarely. With my family, question three, I show agape love. Agape love is that great Greek word for love that is self, uh, self-sacrificing, other-centered, and unconditional. That's what I show my family. The other extreme would be I whine, right? Stop elbowing your children. I whine, right? 
God requires that we love each other, and he empowers us to do the work and the planning it takes to build strong relationships. John 13, 34, let's read it together. Jesus said, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Now, based on that quick jaunt through scripture, where do you need to spend some labor? Where do you need to gird your loins? Where are you not ready to lead your life effectively? We're about to embark on this study that is designed by God to prepare us for the life he has in mind for us. It's Joshua chapters 1 through 5. But before we dive in, I want to spend just a moment in prayer. Pray with me. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for those who study with us all around the world that you will impress upon us the areas where we need to gird our loins relationally, financially, in our productivity, in our intellect, body, soul, Lord, show us and give us the empowerment and the strength to prepare. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. All right, let's prepare ourselves through the book of Joshua. Look in your notes, either through the link you have online or open the bulletin you got. If you're in the auditorium, you'll find a very simple chart of the book of Joshua. It's got four parts. The first section is what we're going to be studying this winter. It's called the preparation is what I call it. There's four parts to it. The first chapter is all about encouraging the leader. I wrote it that way on purpose because they're infusing courage into Joshua. Chapter 2 is about spying out the land. Chapter 3 and 4 is about the crossing of the Jordan. And chapter 5 is where they affirm the covenant. Okay, the next section of the book is the conquest. There's four parts to that as well. Chapters 6 through 9 are the central campaign through Jericho and then uh, and through the Shephelah and then up the southern campaign and then the northern campaign and chapter 12 is a battle summary. That's the second section. The third section of the book is replication. This is all about replicating what God has been doing. 13 through 19 is all about the different territories each tribe gets. Chapter 20, cities of refuge. 21 is the Levitical cities. And 22 talks about how we settle border disputes. Then the book wraps with only two parts in the commission section. Chapter 23 is the commission to the leaders. Chapter 24, the commission to the people. Much of the next year, we are going to spend in that thought sonnet that is Joshua. We're going to learn how to be undaunted replicators of God's amazing work. In fact, on the right side of your notes, look on the right side of your notes, we list some specific outcomes from studying Joshua. First thing, we who study Joshua, well, we should know and love God better. Warren Wiersbe encapsulates this really nicely in his book about Joshua. He says, the leading person in the book of Joshua is not Joshua, but the Lord Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of Joshua and Israel. In particular, there are five major truths about God that each make their first appearance in chapters 1 through 5 in the preparation section. Here they are. Joshua shows, first thing, that God is the faithful Lord of Israel. You see, God God made two promises to Abraham's offspring through Jacob. A spiritual promise of salvation by grace and a physical promise of a national blessing in land. Joshua only makes sense if we see him in that two-part context. Joshua sees God as he is. He is the faithful Lord of Israel. Spiritually and physically, you're going to see God's faithfulness in Joshua's life and in his book. Francis Schaeffer pointed this out in his fantastic book on Joshua, nearly a half century old now, but it's so good. Schaeffer says this, The covenant God made with Abraham had two aspects. The more important was the spiritual promise. All the world would be blessed through Abraham. 
Christ, of course, eventually came from Abraham to the whole human race. The second aspect was the national blessing, which included a corollary blessing, the promise of land. In all its parts, this covenant was unconditional. Later, God added conditional portions via Moses' law, but the Abrahamic covenant is an eternal covenant, close quote. We get to know God better and love Him more because in this book, we see that He is the Lord. He is the covenant God of Israel. He keeps His eternal, unconditional word. Amen? We also learn here that God is holy. Obedience to Him brings blessing. Disobedience brings deserved physical death. God is also gracious. He gives undeserved honors that He Himself provides for. God is the one God of the universe, the one who exposes all the false gods to be the demonic pretenders that they are. And finally, Joshua shows us God is the warrior. The battle belongs to him. Do you ever think of God as the warrior? A lot of people don't, particularly in our age. Scripture declares that he is the warrior. In fact, all those battles that you and I think we fight and win alone, they're won by God. It, it, we're very much like this baby. Let me show you a little video. Take a look. The dad is doing it all. He's got the video going. He's prepared everything for the kid. He's doing all the work. Wouldn't it be absurd, wouldn't it be ridiculous if that baby thought that he rode that roller coaster alone? And yet we talk like that sometimes, don't we? As if all the roller coaster of our life has been done by us. Martin McDonald of our pulpit team had a great observation on this. Martin wrote me and said, Wayne, too quickly we forget the victory is the Lord's. Through Joshua, the Lord prepares us to remain humble, giving God the glory, and be thankful in victory. He also prepares us for the letdown, that time after victory when we are often tempted to coast in self-confidence and let our guard down, close quote. We get to know and love God better. Second outcome of learning Joshua is that we understand how to conquer. We understand, let me put it this way, how to win against difficult odds successful conquering amid struggle. As I prepared for our preparation, one of our elders, Paul Hahn, made this observation. He wrote me a note and said, Wayne, in Joshua, the situation is not like the Red Sea a generation earlier. Then and there, the enemy was at their back and peace was at the front. However legitimately frightening, it was easier to forge ahead under Moses. With Joshua, the enemy is now in front and peace is at their back. The temptation to settle, to practice half measures is immense in Joshua. And I trust you know the same is true for every one of us. Our series premise points that out. Look, here's why we're studying this. The Christian today, here's what I wrote our elders. I said, the Christian today finds himself or herself in increasingly hostile territory. Leadership seems difficult in the home, in life stage transitions, in the workplace, even in the church. To enjoy fulfillment, the Christian must both recognize God's work in his or her past and prepare for the adventures that are to come. That's why Joshua 1, which we will go through the next time we meet. I know this is very weird. This is not our normal kind of lesson at all. We're not just going into Scripture. We're gonna, we, there is so much about Joshua that we need to understand before we can even get to his text that this is all preparation, so, so stay with me. But when we get to Joshua 1 next time, when we're together, you're going to see over and over this phrase being said to Joshua, be strong and courageous. 
Be strong and here, say it with me. On the count of three, say, be strong and courageous. One, two, three. Be strong and courageous. Again, be strong and courageous. That is not courageous enough. Again, be strong and courageous. All God's people said? That's why, look, look, look at the outline in your, in your notes about Joshua. This, this preparation part of the book. It's all about how we get ourselves, how God gets us ready for the adventures that he has crafted beforehand that we would walk in them. This is why you and I are in Joshua at this place and this time, so that we will know and love the Lord better and we will learn how to conquer amid all struggles. Now, one quick caveat. When we talk about conquering amid struggles, that doesn't mean there's some magic pill. Please, listen carefully. Do not believe the charlatan who tells you, if you'll just follow these four easy steps, then you will have no problems from then on, right? That is not Joshua's plan. There's no magic pill. There's no special formula. That's pagan. It's baloney. In other words, I shouldn't say in public. It's evil, okay? That's not Joshua's way. Look, let me show you. Joshua chapter 11, verse 23. We're going to read this later in the year. So Joshua took the entire land in keeping with all the Lord had told Moses. Joshua then gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. Very nice. Job's all done. But chapter 13, verse 1 says, Joshua was now old, advanced in age. And the Lord said to him, you've become old, advanced in age. Thank you. I hadn't noticed. Um, Sorry. But a great deal of the land remains to be possessed. What? How, how, how do those work together? Believe it or not, they're actually not in conflict. There is no conflict here. It's stated this way. It's not a contradiction. Both statements are true. And it's done this way to emphasize what life is like for every single one of God's people through all of the eras of time. This is the normal experience this side of heaven. We have everything we need. Our victory is assured. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are, you are put into Abraham's covenant of grace by faith alone, and you have, you have won the victory. And yet, this side of heaven, there are battles every single day. And it is not finished until it's finished. Does that make sense? There's always a new beginning, a new battle. Alexander White, brilliant preacher from Scotland a century and a half ago, he said, the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings, right? It's a series of new beginnings. Let's get ready for our new beginnings, shall we? These daily battles that you and I face, and we're going to do so by preparing ourselves through Joshua's preparation. So the rest of this message is actually a setup for your homework. I mean, totally sincere. I'm going to give you an outline that I, I highly recommend that you take some time this week and you do on your own to prepare for our study of Joshua. Okay, let me walk you through your homework. Um, in order to learn from the book of Joshua, we've got to know the life of Joshua, the person that occurs before the events of the book. So let's begin where our record begins. Joshua begins for us with Joshua the slave in Egypt. To understand what he experienced as a slave, here's your homework. And this is in your notes. You'll see it there. Take, it'll probably take you 10 minutes. Read Exodus 1 through 12. Just read that. And as you read, think. Make notes. Ask yourself, how, how might these experiences have, have been used by God to shape Joshua? You see, what you're going to bump into in, in Exodus 1 through 12 is something that was unique in the ancient world. Horrible uniqueness. Not the kind of uniqueness you want. The Hebrews are the only people at this point in history who were under racial, permanent, hereditary slavery. 
from which they could not purchase their freedom. This is not how slavery was done elsewhere in the world. How might that have been used to shape Joshua? Right? Ask yourself that. Now, once you've done that, then take a little bit of time and think about this. What about my own life? Where is there injustice around me? Where is there unfairness and oppression that is hurting me? To what addictions am I enslaved? Right? Think of your own life in slavery terms. And then, and then think about this. How might God be using, just as he did Joshua, using all those things to prepare me? Think it through. That's your homework. All right? Joshua the slave. You see how it works? Okay. The Bible next introduces us to Joshua the freedman. He's freed from slavery. Turn your Bible over to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. And, and actually, I'm going to do this one with you. You can learn more, but I'm going, to, I'm going to walk you through this one. I'll do a couple of them this way. Let's do Joshua the freedman together. Go to Numbers 13. Let's read verse 16. Okay, verse 16. These were the names of the men Moses sent to scout out the land. And Moses renamed Hosea, son of Nun. Ha, ha, ha. Doesn't mean he doesn't have a dad. Son of Nun. It, 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 it's the guy's name. Joshua. He renamed Hosea Joshua. All right, it's all in the name. Right after being freed from slavery, the Hebrew people, they select a a number of leaders, one from each tribe, to serve on this dangerous scouting mission into the promised land. But at this point in the text, that mission is secondary to the name. Hebrew names tell stories. And getting a new name is very, very important. When you get a new name, it, it signifies a transition of focus. All right? So Hosea, Joshua's given name, that means salvation right? Which is a pretty hopeful name to give a slave baby, right? Salvation. Now, there, there is no way that Joshua's mom knew that there would be physical freedom in his lifetime. So, she almost certainly meant this about the other aspect of God's freedom, that which is by grace in the Abrahamic covenant. She hopefully named her son Salvation. That's wonderful, but look what Moses does. He renames Hosea, and he calls him Joshua, which means what, everybody? Yahweh saves. This is, this is the focus for Joshua the rest of his life. His whole focus changes, not just on freedom, but on the fact that God is the one who provides freedom. The rest of his life, salvation comes from only one source, that is God. And by the way, that name Joshua is very important in our lives today because the Greek form of that name Joshua is what? Anybody know? Jesus. All right. Jesus is Savior. Yahweh saves. That's what his name means. So what about us? You do realize that you have a new name as well, don't you? Do you know that, Christians? You're, the name, look, the name Christians is a new name. In, in Acts chapter 11, we learn that in a city called Antioch, they begin to call people who follow Jesus Christians. The very first time that phrase was used. It's a, it's a Romanized, it's a Latin term drawn from Greek. And it was made up by Romans probably as a derisive term. Little Christ. That's what Christians means. It means little Christ. <laughs> You're a bunch of little Christ. But they liked it. They're like, woohoo! We like that. We'll use that. That's nice. Christians. Because what that means is the rest of our lives is focused on becoming like Jesus. We're going to become like him. He is going to transform us more and more because we are freed men, just like Joshua the freedman. All right, next aspect of his life Joshua the soldier. Here's what you're going to do read Exodus chapter 17. And, and read, read other passages. The, the margin notes will direct you to other passages in your Bible about Joshua. He is a great soldier. He has a lot to teach us. You're going to discover at least three things about Joshua the soldier. This is just what I found. You'll see more than this. Number one, I wrote in my notes when I was doing this, God will not tolerate rebellion. You'll see that especially in verse 16. 
Number two, the battle is won by God. He is the victor. And number three, God is a God of word. When you get to verse 14 in that passage, it's amazing how God is so bent on emphasizing word. He is a God of word. Think that through. What does that mean? And after you've learned from Joshua the soldier in Exodus 17, again, bring it home to your own life. Christian, you are a soldier as well. You know that, right? Our, our battles are explicitly delineated by God. Look, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though, although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments. And every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's how we battle. As Joshua fought, we too are God's army, and we fight against lies. Amen? Do you mean that? All right, then stand up. Stand up. Come on, everybody. Stand up, please. Put your notes down. Put, put your Bible down. Stand up <clears throat> and raise your hand and tell me if you know this little song I'm in the Lord's army. Raise your hand if you know that song. All right, the rest of you are going to learn it. It's very simple. You'll catch on quickly. Here we go. With the motions, boys and girls. Here we go. Ready? I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never zoom o'er the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. I'm in the Lord's army. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. Come on, everybody. I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never zoom o'er the enemy. Now, operatic finish. But I'm in the Lord's army. Beautifully done. Give yourselves a hand. That was great. All right, have a seat. All right, here's your homework. Next thing, you're going to examine Joshua on Sinai. This is really one of the most amazing things that anyone ever experienced in human history. He is he's the only person close to Moses while he is on the mountain with Yahweh. You're going you're to learn that in, in Exodus chapter uh, 24, Exodus 24. Now, among other things, you're going to see that on Sinai, Joshua learned that God is real and God is glorious. That's, that's why we sang songs about holiness this morning. God is real and he is glorious. It, it's a lesson, Joshua, we know he must have obviously learned because later in Exodus, <clears throat> we're going to see him worshiping at the tent where Moses worshiped with God. So he becomes a worshiper on Sinai. That's why Jesus, through his conversation with a Samaritan woman, tells us about worship because we have to be prepared to worship as well. Here's what Jesus does. John chapter 4, he's talking with a Samaritan woman, and she says something about worship. She's kind of off, she's wonky, and he lovingly, graciously says this to her and, and through her to all of us. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. We have got to learn how to worship like, Joseph, like Joshua did on Sinai. He sees the character of the triune God, and we've got to do the same. We have to know him in truth if we're going to grow up rightly. Then Joshua steps off Sinai. That's next. You're going to study this in the very, very tragic passage, Exodus 32. When you get to Exodus 32, I know it's sad and difficult, but read it. Make notes. Think. In, in my homework, here's what I wrote down. I wrote down, off Sinai, Joshua learned two things. And you'll, you'll see more than this. But there were two that jumped out to me. Sin is ugly and it is pervasive. 
And secondly, there is a place for righteous anger. Wouldn't you say those are lessons that you and I need ingrained in our hearts? Wouldn't you? All right, then let's say Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13 all together. Let's say it together. All who fear the Lord will hate evil. Therefore, I hate pride and arrogance, corruption and perverse speech. Amen. May it be so. Now, flipping your Bible over to Numbers 11. You're in Numbers 13. Go to Numbers 11. And here's the second one that I want to walk, you, walk through with you uh, for your homework. And this is, this is a part of his life where Joshua gets humbled. Okay? Here's what he experienced. Go to uh, verse 24. Numbers 11, verse 24. Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. He brought 70 men from the elders of the people and had them stand around the tent. Now, this is that special tent, the place of meeting, the tent of meeting where Moses would meet with the very Shekinah glory of God itself. And God himself would engage with Moses, and Joshua was the only person who was always there. He stood guard at the tent while this happened. He worshiped as well. Okay, so they're out there. All right. So he takes the people, had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord descended in the cloud and spoke to him. He took some of the spirit that was on Moses and placed that spirit on these 70 elders. As the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. That means that they, they spoke the words of God. But they never did it again. Two men had remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad. Or as a preacher I know who says, old dad and my dad. Um, the spirit rested on them. They were among those listed, but they had not gone out to the tent, and they prophesied in the camp. This is in the, in the population center of the two million people in this huge city that they had, this moving city. And they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and reported to Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, assisted to Moses since his youth responded, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses asked him, are you jealous on my account? If only all the Lord's people were prophets, the Lord would place his spirit on them. Then Moses returned to the camp along with the elders of Israel. Politics are always part of life. Joshua is worried about a rebellious and whining people. Understandably so. They are straining his mentor Moses to the breaking point. This is how bad it was. Earlier in this very chapter, Moses talks to God. And he says, these people are stinking babies. And I am tired of carrying them. I would rather die. That's what he says. So these people really are straining Moses to the breaking point. And in that environment, Joshua, understandably, is thinking, ooh, maybe two people in the camp speaking God's words, that will incite some kind of of mutiny. Everybody else prophesied out at the tent of meeting, away from the population, but Eldad and Medad do their work right in the middle of the camp. Joshua seems rightly concerned this might incite a, a destructive rebellion. But Joshua gets humbled by Moses because Moses gives the perfect response. He says, God's glory is all that matters. Respect for any human leader is secondary. Joshua is taught to be jealous for God's glory, not for any human leader. Again, Schaefer is just brilliant on this. Look what Francis Schaefer said. The young man Joshua was learning a lesson that anybody who is ever going to be worth anything in leadership must learn. There is a great difference between leadership and self-aggrandizement. Moses would not tolerate Joshua's glorifying him. Close quote. Two more aspects of Joshua's life you're going to go through in your homework. First, Joshua the witness. Numbers 13 and 14 tell the story. It is a fascinating adventure from which a lot can be gleaned. Here's one of the big ideas. As a spy, Joshua had to stand counterculture. He stood and witnessed for truth even against the majority of his people, even in the face of death. And I'm not exaggerating. He was threatened with death. 
for standing with God's word instead of going with the community consensus. Look, chapter 14 of Numbers. So they, the people, said to one another, let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. Oh, that's brilliant. Sorry. Um, Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jehunah, who were among those who scouted the land, tore their clothes. You may know what that means in Hebrew culture, tear the clothes. Absolute mourning. You are grief. You are... You're saying, my heart is rent asunder by this. They tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite community, don't rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people of the land, for we will devour them. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. While the whole community threatened to stone them. Oh my goodness. Dr. Wearsby has a really compelling thought on this. Here's what Wearsby writes. And I, I know I'm quoting from these two guys a lot, but they do so well with the preparation of Joshua. Uh, Warren Wearsby says this, Knowing he was right, Joshua wasn't afraid to stand up to the majority. He, Moses, and Caleb stood alone and risked their lives in so doing. But God stood with them. It has well been said that one with God is a majority. It would take that kind of courage for Joshua to lead Israel into their land so they could defeat their enemies and claim their inheritance. Think of the years of blessing in the promised land that Joshua lost because these people had no faith in God. Can you believe that? Forty years of his life lost. But Joshua patiently stayed with Moses and did his job, knowing that one day he and Caleb would get their promised inheritance. Leaders must know not only how to win victories, but also how to accept defeats. I have a suspicion, says Wearsby, that Joshua and Caleb met each other regularly and encouraged each other as the time of their inheritance drew near. Day after day for 40 years, the Israelites refused to, after they refused to enter Canaan, they saw that older generation die off, but each day brought them closer to their inheritance, close quote. Of course, I know what you're thinking in your, um, in your Canaanite giant voice. You're asking, what does that have to do with us today? Great question. Thank you for asking. Hebrews 10. Read with me the underlined portions. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting together. I know they're all stinky. Yes, other people are horrible. They are. You're right. Yes, of course they are. They're just like the Jews, not you, of course, but other people are just terrible. But you're not to neglect gathering together as some are in the habit of doing. Instead, encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. Joshua shared what he knew was true. He testified of God's faithfulness to save those who trust him. Hebrews 10 declares that we are to do the same thing, encouraging one another as the time of our inheritance every day draws nearer. Amen? Here's the last part of Joshua's life prior to the opening of our book. Joshua, the ordained servant leader. You're going to read Numbers 27 and Deuteronomy 31. Those describe how Joshua is set aside as a servant leader. If you, if you have time and you wish, I would love to hear what you discover in those texts. Um, on the slide, you'll see three things, three of the things that I learned from those texts. Spiritual leadership is from God. Number two, God goes before the leader, not the other way around. And number three, God's leader is a servant. Now, for those of you who are Christians, what, what Joshua experienced as a servant leader, that translates directly to our covenant. You know, we are called to also be servant leaders. First Peter, look up here. First Peter chapter 2, verse 16, describes Christians as free people. We are totally free people who choose to be God's slaves. That's why he uses the word doulos. 
Doulos is, is a bonded servant, someone who chooses to follow a particular master. Just as Joshua did, we've got to choose if we're going to follow the Lord. Choose this day whom you'll serve. Will you follow God? In other words, are you ready to get ready? If so, I strongly recommend you do this homework. Learn everything you can about Joshua before we come back next week and we dive into chapter 1. And then, after you've learned all you can, go through your own past. Look at all the roller coasters, all the phases, all the trials of your life journey, and note how God uses it all to prepare you to be his set-aside servant leader. There are modern tools that can help with this. Um, our pastors can put you in touch with some experts we know who make their living by walking people through strength finding and, and other kinds of coaching. Um, th this costs a little, but it's, but it's worthwhile. If, if you want to pay for that kind of support, just call the church office this week. Our, our pastors will get you in touch with somebody. There, there are also tools online, um, especially ones about something called life maps. They, they visualize how your life has gone and, and how our ordination as followers of Jesus draws from all the experiences, the learning, and the work that he's given us. Now, let me make a quick note. Please don't miss this. Some of the life map type tools online are spiritually weird, okay? So be discerning. If, you're, if you've got one and you're not certain it's any good, copy the address, send it to one of the pastors. They'll help you look through it, okay? There are even great, many great business books that can help us prepare. I just grabbed one, a recent example. Eilat Fischbach, who teaches University of Chicago, she wrote a really compelling book about preparing yourself for success. I really like this title, Get It Done. Not forget, quit, and undone, but get it done, right? She sounds exactly like our introduction to Joshua when she says this, look back at what you've accomplished and look ahead at what you still need to do, right? Now, most importantly, if you are not a believer in Jesus, start right there. Stop living like a slave in Egypt, trapped in darkness. Believe in Jesus, our one true Joshua, God who saves by grace, and prepare yourself for life now and for eternity that is ahead. Let's read one last scripture together. Read with me, Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I started this lesson by telling you about my old friend Jim Shabel. Jim is still going strong, although he is battling some age-related conditions these days. I, uh, I discussed this message with one of Jim and Joanne's daughters, uh, Jill. She's, uh, she's this one right there in the picture with them. I want you to look at what Jill wrote me when we were talking about this message. Wayne, thank you so much for sharing your message notes with me. I love my daddy so much, and I know he prepared and provided for us well, but you illuminated a part of his character here that I probably couldn't see well at the time, given my age. She was a kid when I was going down for those meetings. I know talking about Jim, her dad, I know he is well prepared for whatever God has next for him. He loves the Lord, trusts him for his future, and sees his good hand in everything. I'm so thankful for how he has loved, led, and served our family for God's glory. Close quote. Amen. Someday, this is my goal, someday I want that to be said about every one of us. Somebody to say that about us. Be like Jim. Be like Joshua. Be prepared. Pray with me. Let's pray together. 
Father, I pray for, I want to pray first of all for anyone who is studying with me that is not a believer in Jesus. I pray you will draw them to you right now. Listen, friend. You are trapped in the slavery of darkness and you feel it in your soul. Everyone does. Something is wrong. It is off. But God has made a way. You, if you trust Jesus, our Joshua, our Savior, you are grafted into that Abrahamic covenant. You become saved by grace. It's all by faith. If you've never done so, believe on Jesus right now. He, he is exactly who he claimed to be. It's the only reasonable conclusion. He is God the Son, and he died on a cross to pay for your sin. And he rose from the grave to conquer sin and death so that you would know your inheritance is coming in him. Believe in Jesus. And Father, I pray for all the rest of us that we will not be intimidated or overwhelmed by preparation, but we will take it in the stride of your empowerment and that we will engage with your preparation of us and not just somehow float by. In Jesus' name, amen.